Jesus, uh, we pray that today you would be speaking to us as your people. Uh, Lord, that I wouldn't get in the way of it, that, that I'd be your instrument in this. And through your mighty word, you would build us up as a people who reflect the glory of Christ. Uh, we want to we grasp that 1 Corinthians reality, Lord, that the a message of the cross, the word of the cross, is the power of God for we who have believed. Uh, we want to grasp that, that is the power that brings people into salvation and it's the power that builds us up. And it's the power that builds us up, not just generally, but specifically in the areas of our life in our marriages, in our families, in the struggles that we go through, in singleness and in marriage. Lord, you, you build us up by the word of the cross. So Lord, we want to grasp that today. We want to see ourselves and our church and our community transformed through the power of the cross. So we pray that that's what you'd be doing today, that you'd be building us up to be like Jesus. Amen. Final invitation for now. Grab a Bible if you've got one. Flick open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you don't have one and you, and you would like one, uh, let, me, let me give that in two versions. One is if you don't have one in your hand and you would like one, there's a pile over there on a chair. Second is if you don't have one at home and you would like one, there's a pile over there on the chair and you may take it with you. Now, um, reading that passage, there was probably some parts in it, my guess would be, where the modern person in all of us went, oi, that's, that's pretty different. Um, we live in a day when... Uh, there is a, a very, uh, there, there, there's the Christian take on sexuality and marriage and singleness, and then there is the world's take on it. And those are very different categories right now. Um, it is a, a defining issue of our time, sexuality. I don't know if you've noticed, it comes up every now and then in our culture, uh, almost constantly, really. Uh, it often defines whether you're seen as a part of the mainstream of, of modern Australian and Western cultures in particular, uh, or whether you're outside of that on, and on the outside. It's not, it's not just, though, a culture-wide issue. It's also an intensely and increasingly an issue of personal identity in our country. Uh, I don't know if, know if you've run into this, but your identity is increasingly understood by many to be defined by your sexuality in modern Australian culture. This is a message that, that comes up all of the time in media, in politics, in every sphere of our culture. And today, like I've mentioned, we're stepping into 1 Corinthians 7, which speaks at length to the issue of marriage, singleness, sexuality, and broadly to that issue of sexuality, and, and also to that of the very tricky issue of divorce as well. Uh, we're going to look primarily at this in, in the three main sections of what we get here. Um, we're... we're uh, going to look at this, Paul will apply gospel reasoning to marriage, to singleness. Uh, verses 1 to 5, he covers what sexuality in marriage is supposed to look like. Uh, verses 6 to 9, he covers singleness. And verses 10 to 16, he covers fighting for marriage and, and how divorce fix, fits into this picture. Uh, uh, but first, I want to draw your attention right down to the bottom of the passage, uh, to the to the key gospel principle in this whole section that drives this whole section of what Paul's writing. The whole of chapter 7, by the way, is on this issue of marriage, sexuality, and singleness. And, and we're cutting it in two parts. So we're coming back next week. But the key driving principle of it we find right at the bottom of our passage today. Uh, now, uh, before I tell you it, uh, let me just skip you back again. Or if you haven't been here with us, take you to it for the first time. We're in 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul again and again and again addresses these issues 
that are coming up in the church there. And what he does, we get a situation that's happening and we get a gospel principle that he brings into that situation and then we get the application. And so it's really vital. It's very tempting for us to go situation, application, and skip the gospel principle sometimes when we read the Bible. But the gospel principle is the key part. It is the main thing we take away. It's how we see transformation in our lives is to apply the gospel principles of the Bible to our lives. Now, the overall principle driving this text, like I said, it's down there in verses 17 to 24. Paul spends this paragraph in the middle of this chapter on sexuality, marriage, and singleness, where he doesn't mention any of those things. Do you notice that? Like, when, when Catherine was delightfully reading that out for us before, did you notice that he's, he's like talking about sexuality, he's talking about singleness, and he's talking about divorce, and then he's talking about bond servants and circumcision? And you're like, hang on a minute, how's John going to weave this in with what we're talking about today? But I don't have to, because Paul does. Uh, what he uh, raises there is the driving principle for his ethic of sexuality, marriage, and singleness. And the reason he doesn't mention sexuality, marriage, and singleness in that paragraph is that he's showing that this is actually an all-of-life principle. It's not just for those areas. He spends this chapter applying that all-of-life principle to these specific areas, do you see? Here's the principle. Remain with God where you are. Pretty straightforward, right? Verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And verse 24, he says, So brothers, in whatever condition, or brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. Remain with God. Remain where you are with God. Here's the logic. Okay, uh, When we get saved, we might think to ourselves, God save me. Amazing. Perfect logic so far, by the way. Um, amazing. Now, where is he going to send me? And how is he going to change my life circumstances in this new thing that he's doing in me? What big change is going to happen to my situation now that I'm saved? And Paul says, being saved probably won't change your circumstances, but it will change you. Because you, you're with God now, you will be changed, and so you are called back into your everyday life as a representative of his presence in your everyday life. Remain where you are, but with God. Remain with God. You know, it's funny, like, like loads of people, loads of Christians spend a lot of time, potentially waste a lot of time, trying to figure out where is God calling me. Now, that's not always bad. That, that can be a really good thing to discern the Lord's will for the next stage in your life. But understand, the Bible is 100% black and white clear right here. You've already been called into a context. It's right where you are. And there's no, no Christian who isn't called. We're all called into the mission field of God, exactly where we are. Uh, this is both an instructional and an invitational principle, though. I want to show you. It's instructive because we are called to remain where we are with God in that we are changed by him. We, like, like, like we're seeing throughout this letter, the gospel calls us to be who we are now, right? So remaining with God means being a gospel presence in your workplaces, in your marriages, in your families, in your friendships, in your everything and everywhere. But it's also inviting. It's not just telling us, now go and do it. It's also inviting us into 
understanding that we are with God in our situations, that he is with us. Whatever God calls you to, he is with you in it. He is empowering you in the situation. He is pressing on with you. He never leaves you so that you can go on with him. So you're being called to live out a gospel presence here, but you're also being invited to experience the power of God as he equips you to do the hard, the hard tasks, the difficult situations, the challenging parts of life that he has called you into. Life is challenging. I'm sure that all of us can relate to that. And God's saying here both, I've called you in there, you have purpose there, and I'm with you in it and empowering you for it. That's important to keep in view because uh, we're going to speak to a number of areas today where people very, very often struggle today. And, and it's important to know that God doesn't just call you to live out a gospel presence there. He also goes with you and invites you to walk with him he empowers you by his spirit. And he can be trusted to provide for you. When, when you struggle with your marriage, when you struggle with your singleness, he is, he is there and will provide for you to follow him there. He can be trusted. So the first situation, wheeling back to the start of the passage, right? The first situation where Paul brings this thinking of remaining with God uh, as a gospel presence to bear is, is in marriage, um, particularly in the marriage bed. Um, the Corinthians have this question. Now, if, if you've got an ESV there, I think they did the right thing, and most commentators agree they did the right thing, of putting quote marks around the first part of this passage. Isn't it uh, where, well, what are the words? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he's, he's, he's talking about concerning the matters which he wrote, and here's what they wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This isn't Paul saying it's good for a man not to. This is the Corinthians saying that to Paul, and Paul will now respond. And it's an idea, though, that comes uh, from the faulty, kind of non, well, very non-Christian concept that the spirit and the body are against each other. Uh, the spirit is good. The body is bad, and so fulfilling bodily desires therefore must fit into the bad category and the thing to be avoided. The word for it is asceticism, if you want it. I don't know if you do, you probably don't. Uh, I, I don't want to kill the end of 1 Corinthians for you, right up in chapter 15, but, but our story ends in a very intentionally physical, bodily resurrection. It's, it's, uh, the Christian take on spirituality is necessarily physical. So Paul says, no, essentially. <laughs> and of the many countercultural things in our passage today, and there's a, there's a number of them, this section is probably the most countercultural, both in our day and in their day, although for drastically different reasons. Um, uh, if you want to, want to get your head around where they were, get your head around this quote. Um, this is from a, a fellow named Demosthenes. Don't know if I'm saying it right, it's a 2,000-year-old name, doesn't really matter. Um, and he represents, this is a letter written to another guy in ancient kind of Greco-Roman culture. And what he says is, this is what living with a woman as one's wife means. To have children by her, to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and to the deem, that's a suburb of Athens, and to betroth the daughters to, one's, to husbands as one's own. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. 
concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. So, so do you get the, the categorization of the different women, which incidentally were seen as the possession of this man, right? So, so he had his wife. She was for kids and house, okay? Line. And then he had the mistresses. They were for something else. And then he had the concubines, and they were for something else as well. Now, this is the culture that Paul is writing into where a wife is seen as the possession of her husband and where she is not, the marriage is not primarily seen as a place where sexuality is practiced except for in the purpose of procreation, right? And this, into this context, Paul gives this astoundingly active, mutual and exclusive understanding of marriage. Basically, he says, to the exclusion of all others, a married man should have one woman, his wife. And a married woman should have one man, her husband. I say a married man and a married woman because a single person doesn't have anyone. Uh, and, and not just that, but they should practice physically giving themselves to each other regularly. Now, this is a, a tricky passage that has already become apparent. But Paul's ethic of Christian sexuality in marriage is an application of a broader biblical principle. Here's, here's that broad biblical principle as, as Paul quotes Jesus in Acts 20. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's the driving principle. Our practice of giving as Christians is rooted in the fact that Jesus, who deserved all, gave all for us. Jesus deserved all honour, all glory, all strength, all might, all kingdoms, all thrones, all crowns instead died to save us. And he has ascended to the position of glory, but he got there via dying for us, descending for us. Our, our, our attitudes here, as everywhere, are to be shaped by the person and the work of our saviour, Jesus. And Paul is bringing that gospel principle of other-focusedness, of, uh, of giving rather than taking in reflection of our saviour, he's bringing that to bear on marriage. And what we have to say now, because of the tendency of our old selves, uh, because of the tendency of the sinful part that remains, uh, to twist God's word out of shape and bend it for our own purposes, is that there is a very wrong way to apply this passage, passage and a very right way to apply this passage. The wrong is this that one member of the marriage takes this as license to demand and take what they want when they want it. Understand, I'm being slightly coy sometimes in my language here because we've got kids present. T turn your face back to the Bible. Point me there to the bit where he talks about taking. He doesn't. He talks a lot about giving and nothing about taking. Actually, the logic of Paul's argument wouldn't even allow this, right? Follow, follow me here. If her body is his and he demands and his body is hers, which incidentally was nuclear sort of controversial in Paul's day to say, to give that equality there, that mutuality, that if his body is hers, then she might reply, your body's mine. I demand that you do not. Stalemate, right? Like, it gets awkward at that point. Contrary... Uh, not, not just that, but it, it would be contrary to Paul's broader view on marriage that we see over in places like Ephesians 5. 
where the husband leads in Christ-like love, giving himself up for the good of his wife, and the wife submits in church-like posture to the husband as head, knowing that he will act in love for her. If Paul then turned around and said, but in the bedroom, just take what you want, all about you, then can you see how that would be a severe contradiction? That that wouldn't fit? But what Paul's saying isn't contradictory to his teaching on marriage. In fact, it fits perfectly into it. And that is that your focus is to be radically other-centred. So husbands are to lead in a way that focuses on the needs of their wives, and wives are to submit in a way that focuses on the needs of their husbands. And that's the right way to take this. If your marriage, and particularly in the, the sexual intimacy of your marriage, you, uh, in that you are to reflect the distinctly Christian characteristics of being radically other-focused. Your goal is not to be satisfied, but to satisfy. Your goal is not to be pleased, but to please. Now, there are some specific points that really need to be given to that. Firstly, uh, because the focus here is on giving yourselves for each other's pleasure, I know this can be a bit awkward. We're just doing it, okay? Um, Because the focus is on giving yourselves for each other's pleasure in a way that fights temptation in your marriage. See that there in the passage, he says it. The point here is categorically not that you figure out how often one person wants to do this thing and how often the other person wants to do this thing and then you just follow the timeline of the person who wants it the most. Okay? That's, that's, that's not what Paul is saying here. There's absolutely the possibility of too much of a good thing. Even of tearing your marriage apart through an excessive focus on one thing. What it looks like specifically isn't always the same, but the discussion to have regarding how often should centre more around what will give you, my spouse, the most joy and what will be effective in battling sin in our lives. Just going to put it out there. Daily is more often than is needed for battling sin in anyone's life. Yeah. This is going to be a great sermon for sound bites later. Second qualification Often, but presumably not always, one member of the marriage will need to broaden their view of what naturally comes to them, of what it means to make it their goal that this be as enjoyable as possible for the other. And the other will have to focus their view beyond what naturally comes to them, of what it means to make it their goal that this be as enjoyable as possible for the other. What I mean is, for some, You just get a free marriage counselling session. This is essentially what we're doing here. Um, From Paul, not me. Congratulations. What I mean is, for some, we read this and we go, well, my responsibility is to make this good in the moment for them as it is good in the moment for me because naturally we're in the moment kind of people, right? We're inclined to focus on the moment. And uh, the reality is that for many, their enjoyment of the moment of the act is defined not so much by the moment, but by eight hours before the moment, by relational intimacy outside of the moment, by showing them love in a way that speaks to them. You see, 
Often their experience of the moment is defined by whether you choose to give yourself up for them earlier in the day, to make time for them, to help them, to get the rest that they need. In other words, to show care for them, to lay yourself down for them. And so for, for some, giving yourself for the joy of the other, which is the principle that Paul's giving us here, right, means giving yourself at other times in other ways. And on the other side of that coin, for those who have that broader view of affection and intimacy that is more affected by the earlier in the day, what, uh, wh whose experience is uh, defined mostly by other experiences, uh, the call is opposite, right? You're called to maximize joy and pleasure for the other. So if their enjoyment is defined by the moment, your call is to try to make yourself available in the moment. So, second qualification. For some, this is a call to broaden your view, and others, it is a call to focus your view. Third, before we move on, because the focus is on giving for the sake of the other, and because of the broader picture of marriage as a reflection of the self-sacrificing leadership of Christ towards his church and the joyful submission of the church towards Christ, there will absolutely be times when the principle of regularity needs to be in influenced by the circumstances that we are in, right? If, if it's not clear, I'm, I'm going into a lot of detail here because this is something that's been done in a really busted way in the past by a lot of folks, and we want to get it right. Paul gives the possibility here that you might deprive one another for prayer by mutual agreement. And in context, that makes sense, right? Because what are the Corinthians saying? The Corinthians are saying, you know, isn't it holier not to do this at all? Isn't it more spiritual not to do this at all? Wouldn't it be more devoted to spiritual things? And Paul picks the most spiritual thing, prayer. And he, and he says, no, it's not more spiritual not to do this. It's just more dangerous. And he takes this legitimate, actual, vital, sp spiritual practice of prayer. And he says, maybe for that, for a limited time, upon mutual agreement, you might, but you have you come back together again. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times when your rhythms in this will need to change. I think that happens less in the realm of depriving one another and more in the realm of recognizing when it is not possible or when it is not healthy for one member of the marriage. So, for instance, if the wife has recently given birth, Easy example. Take the low-hanging fruit, John. Uh, then the self-sacrificing leader of a husband will have to adapt his needs to that situation. And they'll have to adapt how they approach this thing. I love the way that uh, John Piper sums up this section of 1 Corinthians. He writes, I don't know if I have this as a quote up there. Do I? I do. Okay. He says, the practical application of 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5 is not resolved by logic or taking turns or male dominance or female submission. It is resolved in the mystery of love that discovers even here, when our physical pleasure is more prominent than anywhere else, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a holy and humble and self-sacrificing competition to make the other maximally glad. The logical stalemate is broken by the miracle of grace. With God, all things are possible. I know that what we've just discussed can be a struggle in quite a few marriages. I've been pastoring, I mean, blimey, I've been married long enough to know that that's a thing. 
Um, it's more common than you might think. Before we move on, let me just remind you of this again. This isn't just something God instructs you to do. This is something that he is with you in. Again, remaining with God is the overarching principle here. Both as instruction and as invitation. He empowers you. And one of the ways he provides for you, Christian, is with a community of believers around you. And I know this, this might just feel too personal. I'm not asking for a show of hands right here. That would probably be a bit too personal. But let me encourage you, as a person who closed off too much in the early years of his own marriage about a whole bunch of problems we had, you know, when we were arguing <laughs> each other every day and we just needed to go and talk to someone about it and it just felt like the normal thing to do was to say, yeah, marriage is great and we're going fine. There is beauty in having mature brothers and sisters speak into your situation. To give you the grace of Jesus in your marriage. In your everything, really. This is an area you'll... You have to live this alone. Uh, just the two of you. But it's not an area where you shouldn't seek wise counsel. And shouldn't experience God's provision in that way. Okay. I have good news. We made it past marriage. The next issue he deals with here is singleness. And it's going to be shorter, by the by. Um, but uh, if, you're, if you're single here and you're like, man, I feel gypped by that, take consolation. He actually circles back around to this in next week's passage, which is why this is shorter. Uh, but here, Paul, as he encourages us to remain with God where we are as a gospel presence, now turns to those who are single. And, and remember, the mentality of the, Christ, the Christians in Corinth uh, was um, they were coming at this from the angle of marriage and sexuality are, are probably sinful, right? Um, they're probably things that we want to avoid. And Paul says that it, that it is actually a good thing to be single. He affirms that. It's not better than marriage. It's not worse. But being single frees a person to serve God in ways that a married person can't, he says. Let me say this, and I'll try to be as sensitive as I can. Um, and I'll lose all of my notes exactly at the wrong moment. The opportunities that a single person has, that a married person does not have, that Paul refers to here and further down in 1 Corinthians 7, um, are primarily in the area of time. And if you're, you're single, you might scoff at that. Uh, you might hear that and say, yeah, but I'm really, really busy, actually, John. You, you might have wasted time before you got married, but I'm really busy. But hear me out here. Let me, let me share an experience that, that I think is common to basically... It's common to every married person I've spoken to about it, to the point that I'm becoming convinced that it's universal. Um, when I got married, I looked back and I realised that, that I had so much time before I was married, I was just filling it with things. Uh, if you feel like your life is full, this isn't just a principle for singles, right? If you feel like your life is full, that is not a reason to say that you don't have time to serve God, to honour him in your life, to be intentionally more for God. Usually it's just a reason to step back and to assess what you're busy with. Fun fact, 
everyone's life is full. You will not find one person here who, who, who doesn't fill their days with something. Even if that something is sitting in front of a telly, we fill our days with something. We do it naturally. We fill empty space in our lives. Have you ever had a shelf that stayed empty for more than a week? More than a month? No? We do the same thing with our time. The question is, what's it full of? Going to sports games, watching movies, playing video games, sleeping in, seven, eight, nine, ten, going to bed late, growing in a relationship with the Lord, making disciples, reaching the lost, serving your church, honouring Jesus, digging into his word. Clearly, and I've said this, but clearly this isn't just a challenge for singles, right? Like We can all step back and assess our time. But I'm just saying, and Paul will again circle back to this next week, when I and every married person that I've spoken to about this, when I got married, I looked back and went, and went I wish I'd used my time better. And then, and then we had kids, right? And I realised that that was actually a reason back then when I got married to pull back and assess and go, wow, I've got so much time still. Because then I discovered what it meant not to have time. <laughs> um, we, we suddenly realised how much time we had before. I realised what a precious thing it is to be able to sit still and do, or anything, but to read for half an hour, for instance. Like, like, like how mind-blowing that reality is. Or to ha have a conversation with someone after church where you don't midway through it avert someone from dying. You know, you know. No, don't jump into the fireplace. Sorry, you were talking about your broken issues in your life. Sorry, go back to it. Just act like it never happened. <laughs> you know, and at that point, at the same, the same thing happened. I looked back and I went, I wish I'd used better the time that I had. Yeah, let, let me say it. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love the season of life that I am in right now. But the season of life that I'm in right now still does shape my time differently than when I didn't have those people in my life. The reason I say this is that there are opportunities to serve God in our lives. To do things of meaning which pass us by simply because we don't step back and look at the situation, look at our week. You know, just break it down and go, how much time am I giving to each thing? And is that proportionate to the importance of those things. That's a good practice to do. Just pull your week back. Write down a list. I'm not saying timetable yourself every single week, but just, just step out after one week and just go, okay, what did I give most of my evenings to this week? How was my spare time spent? What am I focusing on? How many hours am I giving to work? How many hours am I giving to rest? How many hours, what am I doing in my rest? You know, Just to assess, to think about it. Where does God fit in the picture of my life practically in my weeks. And if you're a single person, whether by choice or by circumstances, right, Paul would say to you that you have a profound opportunity not to be missed. And it doesn't feel like that usually. Let's be real. Usually, I don't know, when I was single, I was just bummed about the fact that I didn't have someone, right? Um, and I look back and I go, yeah, it's probably going to happen anyway. I just wish I'd used that time better. 
can we see how countercultural Paul's view of singleness is today? Because today, remember what we said right back at the start, your identity is increasingly understood in our culture to be defined by your sexuality, right? And Paul says, actually, I think it's good to be single. Just, just to not have that burden. And, and in doing so, he reveals something really important about all of us. Our identity as Christians isn't in our sexuality. What makes you meaningful, what you can give your life to, isn't in whether you have a partner or not. It's established already in Jesus. Your identity is first about your relationship with God, which has been established and won't be shaken if you trust in Jesus. And because that's your identity, if you can, it is good to remain with God, single. Because a single person without kids or wife has opportunities, frankly has time, which a married person, a person with kids, does not. And, and the if you can in that sentence is actually really significant because Paul goes to lengths to say that this is a gift which not everybody has. And if you're a, a single person who desperately longs to be married, then please hear this right. That is a, that is a fine there's a good desire that you have, and I'm sorry if it's been a really long struggle for you, and, and I pray for you in that. But whilst you have a season of singleness, however it has come upon you, however long it might be, use the blessings of the season that you're in. Again, before we move on, remember, singleness can be really hard. I don't want to diminish that at all, but God is with you in it. You are remaining with God in the season that you're in. He cares for your struggles and his people care for your struggles. He provides for what he's calling you to do. and He can be trusted. All right, finally, Paul gives us a section on marriage and divorce. Let me cover just one very quick side note. We're trying not to rabbit trail too much today because this is already going a bit long, but... Um, uh, there's, there's one thing that he says here that probably does need to be addressed. Um, Paul says that one thing he says is not I, but the Lord. And then he says that the other thing he says is uh, from me, not the Lord. Um, here's my tip. Don't get hung up on it. He's just saying that the first part is something that Jesus talked about and said in his, in his earthly ministry. And the second part isn't. He's not differentiating authoritative parts of scripture, anything like that. They're both authoritative. They're both the inspired word of God. He's just saying, Jesus said this when he was walking the earth, and he didn't say this, but it's still in the Bible. Okay? Now, what Paul says here is challenging. And, and I have dear brothers, sisters, even mentors in the faith who disagree with me on how I read this. I just want to flag that for you. Um, and... and all I'm going to do for you here is just explain for you what I believe the Bible is telling us here. Okay? And again, the principle he brings is in this context of remaining with God where you are. First, foremost, there are things which Paul says here which are not disputable, which are non-negotiables in the Scriptures. At the top of that list, divorce is bad. 
In fact, divorce is contrary to the gospel presentation which marriage is intended to be. So, so marriage intended from creation to echo the great, greater marriage, the marriage, Christ to his church as, the, as Christ loves and lays himself down for and leads his church and as the church submits lovingly to Christ. That's what marriage is from creation intended to be. And clearly divorce breaks the gospel picture, right? And therefore fundamentally breaks what marriage is intended to be by its creator. So Paul says husbands and wives should not divorce one another. Basically, Paul's saying without biblical grounds for it, these are your options. If you claim to be a Christian, claim to be a follower of Jesus and leave your partner, be reconciled to them or remain single. Thus far, this is deeply culturally controversial in our world, but incredibly clear in the Bible, right? Not, not, not hermeneutically uh, controversial at all. Long words. Anyway. Another crystal clear point that Paul gives us is that being married to an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know Jesus, isn't grounds for divorce. Uh, Paul's speaking primarily to those who were saved whilst married and the, the, the other spouse has not come to saving faith. Uh, and he, again, he applies the principle, remain but with God. Stay where you are, if they're willing to stay with you. I bring that up, particularly because uh, there's been surveys of, of churches, of Christians, who, who, you know, about what we consider to be a, a justifiable biblical grounds for divorce. And, and one of them that people list is, well, they turned out not to be a believer. And, and, and Paul's like, yeah, so stick around and they might become one, you know? <laughs> they may come to salvation through you. When he says that the spouse and the children will be holy, that, that's a little bit less clear, right? Um, but we, we get some clarification over in 1 Peter. Peter, uh, simply, uh, similarly, in chapter 3, he calls wives of, of unbelieving husbands to be a gospel presence in their lives, even without words, if he won't listen to the words of the gospel, so that he might be saved. The hope here is that through being a gospel presence the unbelieving spouse and kids will come to believe. No, this isn't guaranteeing salvation to someone because they're related to a Christian. There are not qualifications to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But your children will have the opportunity to grow up with a Christian parent, to hear the gospel, to see it lived. And so will your spouse. But now, there are, there are some issues in here that are, that are less clear as well. Uh, and I'm going to give you my take on this, uh, which I believe is thorough, thoroughly biblical, but I just want to let you know there is some debate around some of these things. Paul gives an exception to this requirement to not divorce and to not remarry. And we get a, a second exception from Jesus over in the Gospel of Matthew as well. So Paul says that if a Christian is married to an unbeliever and the unbelieving spouse, obviously without the intention of returning, leaves, you know, it can't be they're heading down to the shops, um, the believing husband or wife is not enslaved. Likewise, over in Matthew 19, Jesus says that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, so see the exception, and marries another commits adultery. That word, sexual immorality, incidentally, is more broad than adultery. Um, but, but broadly, we get two exceptions here, right? Two, two reasons. 
in, in the case of sexual immorality, in the case of abandon, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. These are the only two exceptions in the New Testament. I've checked. Not because I wanted to. These are, uh, sorry, the only biblical grounds for divorce. And in the case of someone who is divorced in one of these situations, that person then effectively is single. We circle back to the principles for a single person, right? And so the same principles which apply to any single person applies to them. They can remarry or they can stay single if they have that gift. So in short, yes, the Bible does give two situations in which divorce can be acceptable. Oh, I'm going to get questions after this one. And in those situations only, is it okay for a divorced Christian to remarry? You're with me. Are we tracking together? I realise that we've gone, gone a bit long here. Because God takes marriage seriously. And it, is, and it is his thing before it is our thing. And it is ultimately for the purpose of revealing the gospel, his gospel. So these are the only two situations he gives us. Now, there are a couple of very significant qualifications to put there. And, and bear with me if you're like, come on, John, I need to eat lunch at some point today. Because you bet your bottom dollar there are a few people in this church right now who this means an awful lot to. First, most important qualification, neither of these grounds for divorce and, and remarriage makes it a good thing or a necessary thing. It's a, it's a commendable thing to seek reconciliation. It is a gospel-reflecting thing for a marriage to practice repentance and forgiveness. But they are grounds for divorce. No one, no one should divorce lightly. Even in, even in these serious circumstances, it shouldn't be a, great, I've got my ticket, I'm out. Right? Second, abandonment can happen without a person physically leaving. This is what we see in cases, I believe, of serious abuse. Serious, and, and, and I, I, although there's debate over this, this is something that, that I sit with the majority of, of, of biblical scholarship on, by the way. Um, serious abuse of a spouse is a deeply sinful thing to do, obviously. And as a pattern, it may well reveal that a person is living in sin without genuine repentance, meaning that they are not a saved part of the community of believers. In that case, without physically leaving... They have revealed that they are an unbeliever who has abandoned the marriage in all meaningful ways except for walking out of the door. And that does constitute grounds. Now, probably doesn't need to be said, but this is some heavy stuff that we've been digging through today. You know, this isn't kind of your light kind of, we, we, oh yeah, the Bible's interesting sort of talk. This is, this is the, the stuff that can bring out some wounds. Um, and I want to close today with a few invitations. First, you might hear all of this and the weight of it in your situation, in your marriage or in your singleness might seem too much to you. Let me encourage you, take... You can't, you can't 
do everything at once, usually. Take the next step. Trust in God. God knows your struggles. He wants to empower you to move forward in reflecting him in your situation. He called you there for a reason, black and white, in the Bible. You're called where you are. Just take the next step. That might look like starting an honest conversation with your spouse. Uh, One that's been overdue, something that you both know has been broken for a long time and needs to be fixed. It might look like inviting some extra voices into that conversation, some gospel voices. It might look like just stepping back and asking yourself, what is the one thing that takes up most of my free time, for instance? And then seeing if that lines up with the presence of God in your life. It might just be sitting down and talking to me or talking to a a gospel community leader or talking to a Christian who you know is a mature brother or sister who you respect about a struggle and, and getting help figuring out where to go from here. How do we move forward in this situation? I've struggled with this for so long. How can we see growth here? You might need help there. That's why God gave you a community of believers empowered by the Holy Spirit to help you with that. Remain with God by taking the next step. And know that he's with you in it. He doesn't leave you. He's promised to be with you and he remains with you. If there are things uh, we've covered here that are big issues personally for you and, and, and today you would like someone to pray with and to talk with, um, you know, I'll be hanging around. Um, I, I, I'm not going to stand at the front and require you to walk out the front and pray with me. Uh, just, just, just come and grab me quietly after the service. I'll just, I'll just chill around out the front here. You know, a whole bunch of people always come and grab me after the service anyway. They want to ask me questions about why the cups are the right size. But um, no one's ever asked me that. But, uh, you know, what I'm saying is don't be too self-conscious about it. I love conversations anyway. So just come and have a talk. We can have a pray together. We can talk it through. Or we can make a time to catch up, you know? If you get to the end of the today and you walk out and you go, man, I really wanted to talk to someone about that, but I was so scared. Text message me. Texts are easy. We can catch up. We can talk. If you want Crystal to come along, Crystal can come along. If you want it to be just Crystal, I'll ask her. I can't offer that for her. Talk to your GC leader. Mark and Deb, Darren and Bron. Second invite here, maybe... Maybe the issue for you is that you haven't experienced God in your situation. You know, you, you hear the call to remain with God where you are, but you're actually not with God yet. You haven't trusted in Jesus, so you're not living with him in your marriage, in your singleness, or in any other part of your life. There's, a, there's an open door invitation from Jesus today. Come in. Experience the grace of God in your life. Know that he loves you. Know that he gave everything for you. And Jesus came down and died to save you. Know that however much you feel like you might not be good enough, he is great enough to save you. Know that however much you feel like your brokenness can't be overcome, 
You're sitting in a room full of people who experience the overcoming power of his grace in our brokenness. And there's been people so much more broken than you. Come, trust in him. Find grace today. Would you, would you have a pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the giver of grace. You're so generous. You're so kind. You're so loving that you would lower yourself from a station of God down to being a baby and a man and, and dying, even death on a cross, Lord, for us, to rescue us, to bring us back to God. You died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that you might bring us back to God. Lord, I want to pray for all of us here. I want to pray for anyone who has not believed and does not know you and has not experienced your grace, that this would be the day that come to believe that they would trust in the powerful work of Jesus on that cross and that the word of the cross would be the power of God for them. I want to pray for all of us, for every Christian here, that you would pour your grace into us, that we'd experience the, the power of God in our marriages, in our singleness, in our struggles, in our joys. I want to pray for anyone who is specifically struggling today with anything we've been talking about, that you would show your presence to them, that you would show them that you're providing for them. And that you would make them bold to take the next step, knowing that you are with them in it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.